never a dull moment when you are tracking the world's resources. Nord Stream Operator says three offshore gas pipelines damaged in one day. Reuters. This isn't the tiny newspaper that we've never heard of that we have to take their word for it. This is Reuters. Nord Stream Operator says three offshore gas pipelines damaged in one day. They were reporting on this earlier, and then Bloomberg released a story just a few minutes ago. Germany suspects sabotage to Russia's Nord Stream gas pipelines, plural. So Denmark is stepping up security. European gas prices rise as much as 12%. I mean, it's always back to that, how do you pronounce it? Que bono? The Latin? Let's just look that up. Who benefits? I mean... (laughs) Like, you know what this reminds me of? Qui bono. So it kind of reminds me of this car bomb, remember, that killed the daughter of Putin's brain a few weeks ago, about a month ago. It just has that same feel. And obviously, I am totally speculating here. But you look at who benefits here. I mean, who doesn't want Germany and Russia to make friends? Who wants to keep selling their natural gas? to Europe. And then you think of just this whole narrative. When you take a step back, I mean, you know, humor me just for one minute and then we will get back. But what does this look like? You know, Jim Rickards described this Ukraine war as the most avoidable war in history. Okay. So that's not me saying it, it's him. And When we think of the Iraq war, like what characterized the neoconservatives? And to me, it was their audacious aggression, unbridled aggression. Like to me, that was a defining characteristic. One of probably, you know, a few that you could itemize, but that was definitely right at the center of the mandala there, right at the core of the doctrine. Not because I've read the doctrine, but because just based on action, from what I could tell. And I just see a very similar MO, modus operandi here, a way of operating. So who knows? Again, I brought in Jeffrey Christian to help me out because as I look at just everything and how it's all transpiring, I needed someone, I called him the soberest man in the precious metals market, although he might take issue with that characterization, I brought in Jeffrey Christian to help dispel some of these, you know, pretty wild stories that are going around. So it's a very fascinating 40-minute interview that we have this show with Jeffrey Christian to dispel many of the, you know, myths, and I don't use that pejoratively, in the precious metals market. And I, I use the term myths like it may be real, it may be fiction, it is a story that is going around that has taken a life of its own. And we got a few of them. You know, the BRICs are starting their own currency. That gold is being emptied from out of London and out of the COMEX. That the Shanghai Gold Exchange is offering a higher premium. And this is leading to uh, emptying of Western gold inventories, all this sort of stuff. So, I thought it was a great time to get Jeffrey Christian back on just to help, you know, again, give us a sober assessment here because he is actually an expert for me. I'm, you know, someone that scans the news headlines 
again, more of a narrative analyst. What do I know about Comex and what their inventories are? Jeffrey Christian happens to know something about it. He even knows how many ounces are there. So a fabulous interview coming up. So, you know, this pipeline thing, this pipeline has been damaged to the point, like, let's just read a couple of paragraphs and then we can move on. This is Bloomberg. Germany suspects the damage to the Nord Stream pipeline system used to transport Russian gas to Europe was the result of sabotage. This sounds like an official statement of sorts. The evidence points to a violent act rather than a technical issue, according to a German security official who asked not to be identified because the matter is being probed. So it sounds like a sanctioned leak, if I had to guess from that sentence. In response to the pipeline leaks in the Baltic Sea, Denmark is tightening security around energy assets. It's the clearest signal yet that Europe will have to survive this winter without any significant Russian gas flows. And then we have Denmark's prime minister, Meta Frederiksen, saying, quote, it's hard to imagine that these are coincidences. We can't rule out sabotage. So there's Denmark's prime minister. The Kremlin has come out. Spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that before the results of an investigation, it was, quote, premature, end quote, to speculate on whether the damage was related to sabotage. Now, there was a story that came out of Reuters. When was this? Earlier today. Kremlin, sabotage cannot be ruled out as a reason for Nord Stream damage. And again, it's kind of like, does Russia benefit by hurting this pipeline? It doesn't seem like it because they could turn it off anyway. They kind of had all the cards anyway. You could argue this takes away cards from Russia because now there is no longer the lure for Germany to make amends with Russia in a certain sort of way if it gets desperate over the winter. So I'm back to that Latin phrase that we learned today, qui bono, who benefits? So that's why I brought Jeffrey Christian on here. Because, you know, to temper our imaginations, to give us, again, a sober assessment of what is actually happening out there. And if you start to think too much one way, you should just question your assumptions. So that, my friends, thank you for joining us again. Welcome back. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and this is the Northern Miner Podcast. And while we're here, we have an event coming up tomorrow. The Global Mining Symposium, I am actually going to conduct an interview on it. I am filling in for a reporter that is getting hit by the hurricane in Florida. So they will have unreliable power. So I am being brought in to help out. So it is tomorrow that it begins September 28th. And it also takes place on September 29th. Just go to events.northernminer.com. You can still register your interest and get in and participate in one of the biggest online mining conferences in the world. And it has an unbelievable lineup, which we mentioned last week. But again, Douglas Silver, mineral economist, keynote speaker and author, Chris Taylor, advisor to the Discovery Group, George Hemingway, who is just such a great speaker, managing partner and head of innovation practice at Stratalis, Theo Yamyogo, that is who I will be interviewing, Canada's Mining and Metals Sector Leader, EY Canada, and Dr. Aaron R. Bobicki from the University of Alberta, and a couple of dozen more heavy hitters. So it's going to be awesome. So just go to events.northernminer.com 
and you can get more of all your favorite mining personalities. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to this week's CEO Spotlight with Alamo School President and CEO John McCluskey. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome John McCluskey president and CEO of Alamo School for this week's CEO Spotlight. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. And it sounds like your company, Alamo School, has actually been up to quite a bit. I mean, I've seen it over the years. I've been at the paper for, I guess, a decade now. And I've seen your name pretty regularly throughout. So tell me about Alamo School. What should we know? Well, Alamos Gold has a tremendous track record. We got started in the early 2000s when we acquired the Mulatto's Mine off of Placer Dome. And at the time we bought it, gold was in just the worst shape I'd seen it in my whole career, trading at $264 an ounce. The market had been down for more than five years. No one ever thought it was coming back. And at that point in time, we stepped in and acquired this asset that Placer poured $50 million in, we acquired it for $10 million plus a royalty. And we never looked back. That mine went on to produce $350 million in free cash flow. We produced over 2.5 million ounces of gold over the course of production life from 2005 to date. It still has more than a decade of, of production out in front of it. It's just been a, a tremendous foundation asset. We use that to ultimately acquire other projects and develop our, our, our company into a mid-tier. Okay, excellent. So you have several projects then. Are they all in North America or are they spread out around the world? Where are they? We're focused in North America. We have two producing mines in Ontario. And of course, the Mulatto's project is in Sonora State in Mexico. Our Ontario mines are a product of a, a focus that we brought forward in 2014, where we saw you know, very strong relative value in Canada as opposed to other parts of the world. We perceived that uh, the world was becoming a much riskier place and that there were only a few jurisdictions that ultimately would really matter if things got bad. And being here in Toronto, it seemed to make a lot of sense to focus on Canada. And um, the product of that thinking was initially the uh, merger of equals between Alamos Gold and Orico Gold which took place in July of 2015, again, right at the bottom of the market at that time. Gold price was around $1,100 an ounce. We merged those two companies with both of them having a valuation of around 750 million US. So we put them both together and that was the foundation of our sort of Canadian operations. The Young-Davidson mine, which was acquired, it now produces between 190 and 200,000 ounces of gold a year and generates about $100 million a year in free cash flow. And that was the product of investing in development of the lower mine infrastructure, which was a fairly substantial task to take on and really was the impetus behind the, the merger. Uh, but having completed that, we operate that mine at 8,000 tons a day, and, and now it generates just tremendous cash flows. The beauty of that mine is it had a very, very long mine life. There were 3.4 million ounces in reserves at the time we acquired it at 200,000 ounces a year, that gave it a very long mine life. 
but uh, we, we mined it between 2015 and, and 2022. And today it still has 3.4 million ounces in reserve. So we've replaced every ounce we mined. It was close to a million ounces. And uh, the mine still looks ahead at a 14 year mine life in terms of reserves and 20 years in terms of reserves, reserves and resources. So um, that was a, a tremendous first step for us to take in Canada. And uh, ultimately, it, uh, it put us in a great position to make the Island Gold acquisition, which we ultimately did at, at the end of 2017. Okay, excellent. So if I understand you right, then you have two producing mines, and then you have the Island Gold mine. Is that a producing mine? When we acquired Island Gold at the end of 2017, it had been operating at 900 tons a day. It was producing between 90 and 100,000 ounces of gold a year from a, a, a small milling operation. But why we acquired it is we saw significant exploration potential. And I think we saw that potential ahead of virtually everyone else. We saw it ahead of our peer group. We saw it ahead of all the analysts on the street. Might have been one or two that, that appreciated it. But by and large, um, this was a diamond in the rough. It had been overlooked for a long, long time. I think there might have been only four analysts at the time covering it. It had a relatively low market value, as you would expect, you know, with a, a mine producing under 100,000 ounces a year, it was the only asset the company really had. They were struggling, but uh, we took it over. At the time, there was around 750,000 ounces of reserves and roughly a million ounces in resource. But the, the insight that we had at, at, at that moment in time is that the resource was like nothing we'd ever seen for for three consecutive years, resource had been converted into reserves on a one-to-one -one basis. So even though it was defined by 43101 as resource because of the wide space drilling, it was of such high quality, it was all converting. There was no loss and dilution. So this was remarkable because generally when we look at things, it's never quite as good as, as what the junior company or the smaller company is, is representing. They're already waving their arms quite a bit. So it's it's hard for us to confirm what's there. In this case, the company was in effect forced to understate what was there because they were conforming to the 43101 regulation. So we stepped in and bought it at the time. We were heavily criticized for, for overpaying for, uh, for what we were buying um, because the reserve was quite small and, and we paid about 620 million US to, to get it. But within three years time, having allocated about 20 million a year to drill that, that ore body, we'd expanded it to 5.1 million ounces. And that's net of depletion. We, we've mined 600,000 ounces between 2018 and, and 2021. And, and net of that, uh, we, we had 5.1 million ounces in reserves and resources. So we tripled it from where we acquired it. We put out a a study that envisioned a, a substantial expansion of that mine. And where we intend to take it is from its current rate. We took two steps to, to bring it from where it was when we acquired it, 900 tons a day. We initially took it to 1,100 tons a day and then 1,250 tons a day. But now as, as a third step, we're going to take it to 2,400 tons a day. And in order to get it there, we're changing it from a ramp operation to a shaft operation. We're expanding the mill and uh, putting in a, a paste backfill plant, effectively all the infrastructure that it will take to support a 2,400 ton per day operation. An interesting point is that while we were increasing those reserves and resources, the grade went up. 
rather than down. When we acquired it, the grade of the ore body was just, just a snick over nine grams per ton, and now it's over 10 grams per ton. And that's an interesting point because uh, if you've been covering mining for a decade at the Northern Miner, you'll have seen more often than not that by the time a company has expanded a reserve or resource, it's usually at the expense of grade. They're usually trying to pull in more tons, but in doing so, they kind of lose grade. This didn't happen at Island Gold. As we've been drilling to depth, we've actually been seeing the grade increase. For example, the lowest block on the Lower East side of the deposit, where we've been focusing a lot of our exploration, it's grading 15 and a half tons. We have over a million tons at that grade. You know, we've been incredibly fortunate that the idea that we went in with, that as you pursued this ore body to depth, the grade would improve. And in fact, the uh, the zone also got thicker. That combination of things meant that um, we we're able to add ounces very, very quickly. And suddenly we'd arrived at 5 million ounces, probably two years ahead of what we had originally predicted. So that, that was an amazing outcome for us and, and for our shareholders. Well, absolutely. It sounds like a huge source for growth for your company. So would it be fair to say you have three producing mines? Indeed, yeah. The, between, okay. the three, between the three mines, we're, we're producing about 460,000 ounces of gold a year. Mm -hmm. But the Island Gold Mine current, currently produces at around 130,000 ounces to 140,000 ounces, just depending on, on the grades we're mining in any given year. Where we're taking it, according to the phase three study and just using that study as our, our reference, we'll take it to 287,000 ounces a year at sub $600 all-in sustaining costs. The specific number is actually $567 all-in sustaining costs. So that that mine is going to turn into an amazing source of cash flow for, for the company going forward. It'll be one of the lowest cost and one of the most profitable gold mines in Canada. In fact, it'll be one of the most profitable mines anywhere in the world for a gold mine. I was going to say, it sounds like a gold mine. It sounds uh, fabulous. So as we wrap up here, uh, so tell me a lot of, you know, miners are facing this issue with inflation and costs going up. How are you guys handling it and how, how is that coming? So it sounds like you're able to keep costs down. Well, that's in fact the case. And one of the, um, the key risks in a major expansion like this, the cost of this expansion is, is going to be $750 million. US dollars. That's a lot of money for the company to create. Fortunately, we can generate enough free cash flow uh, from our operations to invest in the building out of Island Gold. So we don't need to issue equity or debt or anything else in order to build this. We can we can finance it under our own steam. And the reason why we can be very confident in our in our costs going forward is that the ounces that we're defining are are just so productive. We've got that going for us here. When you've got high grade, you've got a really good opportunity to be a low cost miner. Even if you were in a in a more difficult environment rather than the one we're in, we're, we have to be in Wawa, Ontario for Island Gold, and that's that's a very good uh, jurisdiction. You could drive right up to the mine. There's just nothing complicated about building and operating a mine near Wawa, Ontario. It, it's about as good as it gets. But the fact that the mine is very good grade, the fact that we're taking advantage of economies of scale. It means that the mine, when we're finished building it, it's going to be lower cost than the mine we operate today. And it's it's really the, the economies of scale working in our favor. That's also been true for Young Davidson. It was a 3,500 ton per day mine when we acquired it. We now operate it at 8,000 tons a day. 
we built Mulatto's um, and over time, uh, we took it from a, a 10,000 ton per day operation to an 18,000 ton per day operation. Again, getting economies of scale working in our favor. The only answer in terms of operations to uh, inflationary pressures is productivity. And I think most people know that. It, as far as the, um, the construction budget itself goes, we're aware that a number of big projects in Ontario have blown up. I don't have to name names. I mean, there, there, there's a number of very high profile cases. Why they have typically done so is I think they went in with overly optimistic numbers. Uh, in some cases, those numbers were three years old before they started to construct. And where they typically blew up was in the earthworks portion of the development. We're very fortunate that we've already completed the earthworks. So in our case, 85% of earthworks pertain to the tailings expansion. We had the tailings permitted two years ago, and we completed the uh, tailings expansion almost a year ago now. So the place where you can expect the surprises and the potential budget blowout, we've dealt with that already. We've also finished almost all of the remainder of the earthworks in, in conjunction to the uh, location of the shaft. So that's one major thing. And we also we were able to uh, contract out virtually uh, two-thirds of the uh, budgeted expense for the expansion program. There's about one-third that still has some exposure, but I think it'd be relatively modest. So I would say in that respect, uh, we're, we're well ahead of the game, and we can be pretty confident that we can bring this mine in where we're saying it's going to be. We're working with new numbers. It's an operating mine. We kind of know what the costs are in terms of the development aspect of the expansion. So we're in really good shape. It sounds like it, and a safe jurisdiction too. Well, John McCluskey, President and CEO of Alamo School, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. It was a pleasure, Adrian. Thank you. And thank you once again to Alamo School for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Turning to the website, Korea's LG taps three Canadian EV battery mineral suppliers. So this electric vehicle minor partnership situation is growing. Uh, we have three Canadian EV battery mineral suppliers being tapped by Korea's LG. Let's take a look. It's, this is by Colin McClelland, the Northern Miner. LG Energy Solution of South Korea has signed agreements with three Canadian suppliers of minerals used in electric vehicle batteries as it bets on North America to become a fast-growing market for zero-emission autos. Toronto-based Avalon Advanced Materials and Snow Lake Lithium of Winnipeg will join Electra Battery Materials in supplying materials to the global battery maker. The deals with Avalon and Snow Lake, which both have advanced exploration stage projects, are non-binding. So maybe I should be more clear here. This isn't a automaker per se, LG Energy Solution, but they will be making electric vehicle batteries with what they receive. So they are electric battery providers, LG Energy Solution of South Korea. So continuing on, Avalon is to ship battery-grade lithium hydroxide to LG starting in 2025, pretty soon, from a plant it is developing at Thunder Bay on Lake Superior in northern Ontario, the company said. The commitment is for half of the plant's production for at least five years. So they wanted a lot of the production there. It is kind of getting snapped up, isn't it? 
Snow Lake Lithium has agreed to supply LG with lithium hydroxide over 10 years after production starts in 2025, the miner said. Based on the current resource, Snow Lake says its Thompson Brothers project could produce 160,000 tons of 6% lithium spodumene a year over a decade, enough to power 5 million electric vehicles. The company has not yet completed an economic study on the project, which hosts 11 million indicated and inferred tons grading 1% lithium hydroxide in a resource that is compliant with U.S. SEC standards. Snow Lake says it has only explored about 1% of its 222 square kilometer site and is, quote, confident that further exploration will increase estimates over the course of the next year. And scrolling down a bit, Electra is to supply LG with 7,000 tons of battery-grade cobalt sulfate from 2023 to 2025. I mean, this is next year. In a deal that could be valued at about $63 million US, considering cobalt sulfate traded this month at about $9,000 per ton, according to the Platts Index. You see that? So to me, this looks like it's more about securing supply than about price, interestingly. Like, I'm sure price is a factor, but it's interesting to see how this is being calculated. And we have a quote from LG Chief Executive Yung Su Kwan, who said, quote, these partnerships serve as a crucial step towards securing a stable key raw material supply chain in the region. See that? It's not about getting some great deal where we're all going to make a bunch of money. It is, quote, a crucial step towards securing a stable key raw material supply chain in the region. Continuing the quote, LGEs will continue to ensure the steady delivery of our top quality products, thereby further advancing the global transition to EVs and ultimately to a sustainable future. Interesting little paragraph here. While Quan claims North America is the fastest growing EV market, statistics from the International Energy Agency show China registered the most EVs last year by far. And The Economist notes Europe is the fastest transitioning region. Norway in particular, where nearly 90% of cars sold in 2021 were electric. That is crazy. Just to repeat that, Norway in particular where nearly 90% of cars sold in 2021 were electric. So, you know, people have been, you know, for the last year really criticizing Kathy Wood at ARK Investments, but this is probably even faster than she projected because, of course, she's of the exponential age school. So you can read all about that on northernminer.com. But again, one of our big themes of the year, without question, is automakers and I guess battery suppliers partnering directly with miners and processors. And hey, maybe this happened before, but I sure didn't hear stories like that. Here's another one. This is Reuters via mining.com. Volkswagen teams up with Umicore on battery materials. And it says here, Volkswagen announced on Monday a $2.9 billion battery parts joint venture with Belgian materials firm Umicore, becoming the latest European automaker to bring battery supplies close to home in the shift towards electric vehicles. So Belgian materials firm Umicore. The venture between Umicore and Volkswagen's battery unit, PowerCo, also planned to collaborate on recycling metals from battery materials, the firm said, without giving a time frame. 
Europe's automakers are scrambling to secure stakes in the growing number of plants on the continent, turning raw materials into batteries as political pressure grows to bring the supply chain currently dominated by Asian players close to home. You know, this is going to be one of the biggest sources of inflation. Like, how is inflation going to go down by bringing these supply chains home? It sounds like it's going to get a lot more expensive. Volkswagen is aiming for 70% of its sales in Europe to be fully electric vehicles by 2030. I mean, if you look at Norway, I'm kind of back to this exponential age thing, which I know is completely out of fashion right now. But if oil is like, you know, if gas just goes to, I don't know, $6 a gallon more or less regularly, maybe this happens way faster. And in Europe, I mean, I guess that's like $10 a gallon whatever it is. Continuing on here, but Europe's battery industry is still in its infancy with attempts to mine raw materials in countries from Germany to Portugal held up by red tape and recycling facilities unable to develop at scale without the raw material on hand. I mean, we heard this with Stephen Stewart, didn't we? It's like the economy side of the government. The economic people are saying, okay, we got to develop some mines. And then the regulators are saying, hold your horses, we can't develop these things so fast, okay? So these governments are not working in unison from what I can tell. And finally, under the 3 billion euro joint venture, which the companies flagged in December, Umicore will produce enough battery precursor and cathode material for 160 gigawatt hours of battery capacity, enough for 2.2 million vehicles. It will start with material for 40 gigawatt hours of capacity by 2026 at Volkswagen's first battery plant in Salzgitter, Germany. The car maker plans to build six battery factories in Europe, totaling 240 gigawatt hours of capacity by 2030. Well, if energy goes down, if you have the energy to build those six battery factories, I guess that's the hope. So more deals, automakers and material suppliers. Another story on this whole front here, Vital Metals opens rare earth processing plant in Saskatoon, also by Colin McClelland at the Northern Miner. Australia's Vital Metals, the first producer of rare earth minerals in Canada, opened a processing facility in Saskatoon this week that will feed into the global demand for minerals used in electric vehicles. The 3,000 square meter plant will refine ore from Vital's the Kalako project in the Northwest Territories into a high-purity mixed-rare-earth carbonite product, the company said. The mine, operated by Vital's Yellowknife-based subsidiary Cheetah Resources, began producing in June 2021. The product will be exported to REE Tech in Norway and to a United States unit of Halifax-based Ucor Rare Metals for further refining into individual magnetic rare earth metals, Vital said. The agreement with Retech provides for the option of supplying as much as 5,000 tons a year of rare earth oxides except cerium for a period of more than a decade. In turn, Retech will ship the processed metals to Schaeffler Group near Nuremberg, Germany to build electric motors for EVs, Vital said. And we have a quote from Vital's interim chief executive officer, Russell Bradford, and he said, quote, we are intensely proud of what everyone has achieved to date. The foundations have been laid for a great future for all our stakeholders to develop our rare earth business. So 
pretty interesting. You can read the whole story on northernminer.com. So meanwhile, Greenland Minerals dealt setback in legal fight for rare earth project license. Reuters via mining.com. So you see the push and pull here. Australia's Greenland Minerals said on Monday an arbitration tribunal had declined its request for interim orders against the Greenland government's draft decision to reject the miner a license for the Kvanfeld Rare Earths Project. The company had, in July, lodged an objection against the draft decision as it relied on a rule which bans mining of ore bodies with uranium content of 100 parts per million or greater that is being contested separately in the court. The tribunal ruled the interim orders requested would no longer serve their purpose of maintaining the status quo as the Greenland government had already rejected the miner's license application, Greenland Minerals said in a statement. So kind of an interesting rationale. The tribunal ruled the interim orders requested would no longer serve their purpose of maintaining the status quo as the Greenland government had already rejected the miner's license application. I mean, this is kind of the story you hear from the explorers. In March, the miner took the government of Greenland and Denmark to court for the legislation passed last year that banned uranium mining, risking the development of the Kvanjefeld project. So who knows? And these things are never, you know, super clear. For all we know, this is some massively toxic project. But it just seems like we're not on a war footing here. And to state the obvious, that isn't stated very often. I think we're in a bit of an economic war here. I think that's obvious, isn't it? Next story. Glencore buys Newmont stake in Argentina Copper Gold Project. Interesting. It's by Cecilia Jamasmi. Mining and commodities giant Glencore is buying Newmont's minority stake in the Argentinian Mara Copper Gold Project, a joint venture created in 2020 between the two companies in Yamana Gold. Glencore will pay Newmont an initial price of $124 million US for the gold miners' 19% interest in Mara. So, a bit of deal-making over there. And Los Palambres Union urges workers to support strike action. It's by Valentina Ruiz Leotode. The union at Antofagasta's Los Palambres copper mine in Chile has rejected the company's most recent contract offer and launched a strike threat. In a media statement, the Board of Supervisors Union of Los Palambres said that even though at first glance the company's proposal seems attractive, it doesn't include all the demands presented by the workers and is far from what is expected by both leadership and union members. And we have a quote, the company's offer does not recognize or compensate us at the same level as our colleagues from the other Antofagasta Minerals companies and from the industry, despite the fact that Palambres is the largest contributor to the group in terms of production, profits, and profitability. Under these circumstances, as directors, we take a specific position reject the latest offer, and at the same time, call our bases to vote for the strike on September 29th and 30th. And finally, just a headline, Bloomberg News via mining.com, commodity gauge falls to lowest in eight months on recession fears. And we are going to see that with metal prices. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. begin, as we always do, let's take a quick look at the 10-year bond via CNBC. 
And that is at 3.819%, so almost 3.82%. So we are almost 0.3% higher than last week. We could call that close to a 10% move, I guess an 8% move on the 10-year bond, the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond, since last week. So things are moving out there in the bond market without a question, as they are in the metal markets. And again, we'd like to thank mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices. If we turn to gold, it is trading at $1,635.58 per ounce. That is $39 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $18.62 per ounce. That is $0.84 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $861.66 per ounce. That is $58 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,049.55 per ounce. That is $158 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.38 per pound. That is 15 cents lower than last week. Aluminum is trading 4 cents lower at 98 cents per pound. Lead is 3 cents lower at 82 cents per pound. Nickel is also lower at $10.49 per pound. That is 17 cents lower than last week. Tin is trading 10 cents higher at $9.71 per pound. Interesting. Cobalt is unchanged at $23.26 per pound. And zinc is $0.04 cents lower at $1.38 per pound. What do we see? I mean, with the market turbulence and volatility heading lower, in a sense, you could see it as a bit of a baby being thrown out with the bathwater kind of trade or a deflation trade or a recession fear trade. I would say the big standout is tin, which is showing a lot of relative strength there, which suggests that tin has a bit of a supply issue. That would be my guess. 10 cents higher. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, my extended interview with CPM Group managing partner Jeffrey Christian, who joins us back on the program to help dispel the myths that are circulating on the internet. I ask all of my favorite ones, what is actually going on in this very storied market? I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Today, I am very pleased to welcome back Jeffrey Christian, managing partner of CPM Group to the Northern Miner Podcast. Jeffrey, welcome back. It's good to be here. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Adrian. Likewise, you're always great at dispelling the myths in a very mythical precious metals market. So you are invaluable to us, and we appreciate you appearing on the program. So tell me, I mean, what a dramatic you know, year it's been. And now the, you know, what I call the media new year has begun. We are in September and, you know, we see the crazy currency moves in, you know, the UK today and just everything. Everything looks like it's hanging by a thread as usual from your perch relating to gold or just everything in general. What are you seeing? What's on your mind? Well, yeah, you know, I saw a video interview with Jeffrey Sachs, a professor from Columbia University, economics professor. And the title of the video was, we are in a crisis and it's going to get worse. 
And I keep using that because it's a very succinct way of talking about the state of the world. And, you know, the reality is, yeah, when we issued a buy recommendation for gold in November 2000, November of 2000, you know, we said for 20 years, people have asked us, can gold go back to $850? And we were able to say no. Well, what we said was, if you see a world as chaotic as it was in 78, 79, 80, when the price went to $850 with 14% inflation and 21% interest rates and Soviet troops in Afghanistan and a quadrupling of oil prices and the deepest recession since World War II, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then I will grant you $850 an ounce. In November of 2000, we issued a buy recommendation. We said, we think that the next several decades will be more stressful economically and politically and in terms of the financial markets than those three years in 1980, uh, 1979, 78 to 1980. And we think the gold price will blow past $850 and stay high for a long time. Now that was 22 years ago. We're talking about the here and now, you and I, we're talking about 2022, but the reality is that we are 22 years into a period of greater uncertainty politically, economically, and in terms of financial market stability. Yeah, it's funny because Alan Greenspan wrote some memoirs several years ago and he titled it The Age of Turbulence. And I mentioned to him that his tenure at the Fed from mid 80s, 1987 until 2006 or so, was probably the least turbulent period economically in history. <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, it seemed turbulent to me. But uh, we are in a turbulent period of time with great uncertainty and a lot of things are changing. And this is going to continue for decades to come. And right now in 2022, we're in a cusp of a cyclical change in the economic and political sphere. So we were bumping along in the post-Great Recession global financial crisis recovery period. And then the pandemic threw everything in the hopper. And then in 2021, we started coming out. And now we're living with the consequences of 2020, 2021. At the same time, you have political problems. You have the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You have Putin sort of looking at his political mortality, which is why he invaded Ukraine now rather than at any point over the previous 22 years was, you know, hey, I took power in 2021 saying that I was going to rebuild the Soviet empire and it's 2022 and I haven't done any of it. <laughs> and in fact, the Soviet empire is falling apart. You've got Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan fighting. You've got Azerbaijan and Armenia uh, worse. You've got so Russian-inspired protests in Moldavia, uh, you know, threatening to divide that country. You know, he, he hasn't done too well trying to rebuild the Soviet Union. And then you have other changes. You have changes in the EU. You had the Italian election yesterday. You have major issues in the United Kingdom, the United States, China. The world's in flux. And... I've spent a lot of time this year saying, you know, answering people who say, why are gold prices not rising and why are gold prices so low? Well, first off, gold prices are at a record level. On a quarterly average basis, the record uh, gold price was the third quarter of 2020, $1,900. And, you know, right now we're not that far off of that. 
we're below 1,700 today as we speak, but on an annual basis, 2022 is probably going to see record prices. The record annual average price was last year, 1799. This hmm. year is probably going to be about 1825, maybe a little bit lower. It's probably going to be a record price. It's probably going to exceed last year. We are at record prices. And the reality is that gold prices starting in late 2019 and 2022 anticipated not just potential for inflation, but all of the other issues that were coming above. You know, the pandemic was clear. The results of the government, global government's response to the pandemic were clear. And people bought gold and drove the price from $1,200 in 2018, 2019 to $1,800 last year. And, you know, really since July, August of 2020 until now, we've seen prices trading basically between $1,680 and $2,000. And the reality is that the gold market anticipated the fact that we were in a crisis and it's going to get worse. So if you look at it, investment demands off a little bit this year from 2020. 2018, 2019 saw investors buying about 17 million ounces of gold on a net physical physical gold on a net investor basis. Yeah, and at that level, the gold price was $1,200, $1,300. In 2020, in the midst of the pandemic and everything, investors bought 40 million ounces of gold, physical gold. That was the fourth highest annual offtake of gold by investors in history. They were saying, whoa, <laughs> this is a bad environment. Last year and this year, they're buying about 26, 27 million ounces. So it's down from that 40 million ounces, and the price reflects that. But it's up from that 17 million ounces, and the price reflects that. We're in a long consolidation period after that run up from 1200 to $2,000 in 2020. And that this consolidation period is probably going to last for a while because quite frankly, while investors are buying a lot of gold, 26 million ounces a year is a lot of gold, physical gold, they have backed off from 2020. At some point, Jeffrey Sachs is going to be right and Jeffrey Christian. It's going to get worse. And investors are going to say, I don't want 26 million ounces. I want 36 million or, you know, whatever it is. They're going to increase their demand for gold, physical gold once more, and the price will rise commensurately. It may not happen in 2023, but, you know, as Annie would say, bet your bottom dollar, <laughs> the gold price is going to come up. You know, you can see the writing on the wall. And it all, ha it all comes down to investment demand levels. Central banks are buying more gold. At more central banks are buying more gold at higher prices than before. So you're seeing not the Russians and Chinese and Kazakhs buying gold. You're seeing a number of other central banks. Iraq bought a couple million ounces in June. Qatar bought up 480,000 ounces in July, as did a couple other central banks. You're seeing a broader interest in gold on the part of central banks. So you put investment demand and central banks together because this is stock demand. This is not for making jewelry or electronics. This is, I want gold in gold form. And it's it's very high. And that's going to keep the price up. Mine production, kind of flat from last year, about 86 million ounces. Secondary supply, kind of flat. Uh, fabrication demand, mostly jewelry, up a little bit, but not that great. You know, so it really comes down to what do investors think about the world and what do they think their worldview means for their appetite for gold. 
Well, it's so interesting what you're saying here about like a lot of people, as you rightly point out, say, why hasn't gold performed? Whereas what you're saying is actually not only is it not slow, it's actually very fast. It anticipated, you know, rather than this criticism that it, when is it going to do something? It's you're saying the move was already made before a lot of these events took place. Is that correct? Yeah. Gold isn't performing because it preformed. Exactly. So rather than it being some sort of lagging commodity that's not doing what it's supposed to be doing and that it's not serving its function, you're saying it's doing what it's doing. And as you point out, uncertainty. And since, again, since you've spent a career, you know, focused on gold, just to be clear, to ask you a very simple question. So would you say gold prices are a reflection of uncertainty? Yeah, that's what we always say. You know, we, you know, people say, well, gold is an inflation hedge or gold is a trades against a dollar. And the answer is no, yes, but no. You know, gold trades against uncertainty and issues. Yeah. When I was at Goldman Sachs in the early 80s, I was told, don't talk about problems, talk about issues. You know, we have a lot of issues facing the world and they're political, they're financial, they're, they're economic, uh, you know, and when people are facing uncertainties, whether it's inflation or currency market volatility or political unrest domestically or global political unrest, you know, any of these factors, you know, stock market volatility, bond market volatility, rising interest rates, depression, recession, any of these things that cause people unrest and uncertainty and nervousness tend to stimulate their demand for either gold or the dollar. And sometimes, like right now, they're focusing on the dollar. Sometimes, like in 2019, they were focusing on gold. 2019, 2020, they were focusing on gold. And sometimes they focus on both. But it's the uncertainty. And we have in our gold yearbooks, we have a table that we use. We use it in our precious metals advisory, the monthly report too. We have a table, a schematic diagram, and we have like the six areas of potential uncertainty that cause investors to buy more or less gold. And we rate them, you know, green, yellow, or red. And right now they're pretty much flashing red. Really? So suggesting that people are uncertain. Yes tremendous amount of uncertainty you know and you can we could spend a day going through the litany of, sure. of yeah. just the political factors or the monetary factors or currency market factors inflation factors and they're all very complex you know it's not like as i said earlier in 1979 1980 you had 14 percent inflation that was a screamer yeah we're at eight percent and it's showing signs of peaking and that, I think, reflects the fact that in 19, starting in October of 79 and going forward, Paul Volcker changed the way monetary authorities dealt with inflation and interest rates and monetary policy in, in a way that has helped create that period of a lack of turbulence that I mentioned earlier under Greenspan. You know, everybody learned at Volcker's knees in 1982 when he engineered an economic recovery from what was then the deepest recession in post-war period and an international debt crisis where you had the largest economies in Latin America, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile, all about to default on their sovereign debt. And Volcker and Nick Brady at the Treasury engineered a recovery and a, a, a solution to that. 
And what they showed the world how to behave in 1982 has been used to deal with economic and financial crises ever since. And that's where we're at, you know, but it, it's that uncertainty that causes people to do it. And so you say people saying, well, we're going to hyperinflation. Well, no, we're not going to hyperinflation. Then you have other people saying, well, we're going to deflation. Because we're probably not going to deflation. There are a lot of deflationary pressures that the world and the U.S. and other economies are facing. And they've been sort of set aside by the pandemic and the economic uh, recovery and the monetary policy since then. But those deflationary pressures will come back. And they'll be offset by inflationary pressures. So you'll see disinflation as a result. And so, you know, it's not like you can sit there and say, we're 8% going to 14%. This is like the 70s. No, it's, it's nothing like the 70s. It's a radically different economic world, political world, and financial markets. And that increases the uncertainty. Exactly. And basically, to summarize a little bit your point, some people might say, well, Jeffrey, uh, you say we have a red alert on uncertainty and the price is at 1650, 1680. You would say, however, annualized, we are at record gold prices. Mm -hmm. So that is your answer. Yeah. Okay, excellent. So they are simply not looking at a large enough time frame, which is an annual one. Their gold is too large. They have imbued in gold metaphysical superpowers. Gold is the perfect hedge against inflation, and it moves tick for tick for inflation. It doesn't. Yeah, that's beside the point. Gold will protect you against currency market volatility because gold trades against the dollar. Well, it does a third of the time. The other two-thirds of the time, it doesn't. Yeah. So there are people who have imbued in gold this, this belief, this faith that it's going to solve and protect them from all these issues. And then they're disappointed when it doesn't live up to their inflated expectations. Well, it's tempting to call it the most superstitious of all the financial markets to a certain degree. Again, I want to call it the most mythical of them all. So speaking of myths, I don't know if you've seen the story. I think it was coming out of Zero Hedge, but it was kind of making the rounds on Twitter for a few weeks that the London gold market or the London exchange there was being basically emptied out of its gold and that these flows were moving east. Did you see that? And if you did, do you have any comments on that? Well, first off, I didn't see it on Zero Hedge because that's such a garbage dump. I just don't look at it. I mean, I've never seen anything accurate or real on Zero Hedge. Uh, I have seen those stories and heard those stories and been asked about those stories. And you have to take it in the context. First off, official data on how much gold is stored in the London depositories uh, has only been available since 2016. And in 2016, it was about 950 million ounces of gold. That was in 2016. It rose sharply in 2019 and 2020 because there was this massive disgorgement of gold by investors and others during the early days of the economic lockdown. And it got to very high levels. Sorry, what is disgorgement? People were selling their gold. Okay. They needed, okay. They needed money. Mm -hmm. They were selling gold. The gold price had risen very sharply from 12. And gold prices rose from, you know, $1,200 to $2,000. 
from late 2019 into August of 2020. And there were any number of people who had bought gold at like $1,600 or so in, in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, and they were sitting on losses. And all of a sudden they were $800 higher than they had been 12 months earlier. And they said, I'm gonna take my profits. Plus we're in the middle of a pandemic and a global economic lockdown. I could use cash, right? So you had people selling their gold and that stuff showed up in the London Depository. And what we've seen now in the last couple of years is after the pandemic and the economic recovery, you've seen some of that gold come out and we're back down to around $950. So if you don't know any history and you're only looking at what is available publicly in terms of inventory stocks uh, levels, what you're going to find is that you're going to say, oh my God, you know, we were at 950 when the data first started appearing in 2016. And then we got really high in 2020. And now we're back down to 2016 levels. And it looks like, oh, you know, it's running out, but it's not. First off, it's an enormous amount of gold. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of gold uh, that's out there. And the second thing is you don't know what the history was. So A, gold inventories have fallen in the depositories in London. Some of that stuff has in fact gone to Asia, but the reality is that a lot of it's gone all over the place. Some of it has gone off into jewelry demand and some of it's gone off into Western demand. And you haven't necessarily seen that. You know? And if you look, you won't see it because the inventory data on Swiss depositories is not publicly available, but we have data on the flows into and out of depositories in Switzerland. And a lot of the gold actually has gone to Switzerland. Now that mm. doesn't mean that it's not Asian buyers saying, mm. I want gold, but I don't want it in my home country. It means that there's a lot of gold that has gone from London to Switzerland. And Swiss inventories are probably at record levels right now. And part of this, you have to understand, is the Russian invasion to the Ukraine, which caused a lot of people in Eastern Europe and in Russia to say, I want to move more of my money into gold. And I don't necessarily want it in the UK because of sanctions if I'm a Russian. Switzerland, you know, it's a nicer place to be. And it's more readily accessible and it's more secretive. So part of that gold that has come out of London has gone to Switzerland where it's not showing. But, you know, because the gold market is so secretive and opaque, people don't see that necessarily. So the commentators on Zero Hedge or other dark parts of the YouTube, you know, uh, will sit there and say, well, it must be going to China because the Chinese are smart and British people are stupid, you know. But there's no basis for that. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Well, on this tip too, you hear of, I don't know if you've heard like on this myth conspiracy tip, have you heard of these, like, you know, this idea that the BRICS are all kind of trying to get together their currency and, and that the central banks you're mentioning like Iraq and that these sort of smaller central banks from the so-called global South are accumulating gold in preparation of, you know, some kind of BRIC currency type thing. What do you make of that kind of uh, claim? That's a pipe dream of gold conspiracy theorists. Yeah. The only person 
who are talking about, well, the only person who's talking about some replacement for the London gold market is Putin. You know, and we've done some videos recently on, on our weekly, you know, or bi-weekly uh, videos where we've pointed out that if you look at it, you know, first off, the amount of gold that central banks hold is relatively small. And if you look at a lot of central banks like Iraq or Qatar or other emerging and, and what is now called emerging and frontier nations, what you find is that they don't have a lot of gold and the gold that they do have is a very small percentage of their foreign exchange reserves or their monetary reserves. And you know, if you look at it, gold represents 10% of monetary reserves on a central bank basis. That's aggregate. And most of that gold is held by industrialized countries that used gold for trading purposes during the Bretton Woods period and earlier. So you had a lot of gold that was transferring between the European industrialized nations, the United States, Canada, Australia, and Japan prior to 1971. And most of the gold that central banks own are owned by those countries. And other countries like Iraq or Qatar you know, have not, they were not big trading entities prior to 1971. So they did not build up gold inventories. Most of their monetary reserves are in US dollars. In terms of foreign exchange, 60% of the world's foreign exchange reserves held by central banks are in US dollars. 2.9% are in Chinese yuan. And no one holds rubles as their foreign exchange reserves. There's zero dollars in foreign exchange reserves in rubles. Yeah. So you've got a financial system where you've got countries saying, okay, I've got 99% of my wealth, my foreign exchange, my monetary reserves in currencies, mostly in the US dollar. So it's time for me to diversify away. And what you find is over the last 20, 30 years, it's been very hard to diversify away from the dollar because you need those dollars to finance your international trade. Now, central banks, I mean, I've been working with central banks since 1981. I was studying them prior to that in the 70s, which is why I was working for them and the, with them in 1981. Central banks have been talking about what's going to be the next or the future international currency regime since the 70s. We floated currencies in 1971. We got rid of what they called the dirty float in 1973-74. And the dollar was went from being the de jure reserve currency to the de facto reserve currency. And there's this massive amount of dollars representing the float, not just in central banks, by the way. I mean, private sector financial wealth, estimated 75 to 80% of it is in US dollars globally. Yeah. So the dollar is the liquid market, which is one of the reasons why people go to the dollar during times of uncertainty. And so some of these central banks have been saying, you know, for 40, 50 years, yeah, ultimately we'll have a new international currency regime and we'll move to something, but it's going to take a long, long time. And we've been talking about it for 40 years and it's probably going to take another 40 years. In the meantime, there are certain economic and political issues that suggest that the dollar may actually find itself the de facto reserve currency for a much longer time than people thought partly because there's such an enormous float, you know, to move away from the dollar would be hyperinflationary for those countries whose currencies are moving to, because they'd have to massively increase their, the, their currency in circulation. 
which would have inflationary consequences for them, which is one of the reasons why you haven't seen that. The gold is like a footnote here. You know, it's a very small percentage of most central banks, except for Russia, among emerging economies. Russia, because of the sanctions and because of the hostility between Russia and the United States and Russia and the rest of the world, Russia has had a policy since the oil price started rising 2004, 2006, insofar as possible, converting its foreign exchange inflows, current account inflow of dollars and euros into gold. So they have increased their percentage of their monetary reserves in gold significantly. Other central banks, they've been buying a lot of gold and it's it's a lot of gold for the gold market, but it's a very small percentage of their monetary reserves uh, that they're buying. So they're diversifying their reserves insofar as they can. Putin has talked about, well, let's create this Moscow gold price. No one's going to trade basis in Moscow gold price. Yeah. Not even Russians. Yeah. In the early days of his invasion of the Ukraine, he said, oh, I'm going to pay Russian refiners a 20% discount for Russian refined gold. And no refinery in Russia was selling gold to the Central Bank of Russia at a 20% discount to the international price because they were getting a 20 or 30 or 40% premium from domestic Russian investors who were saying, you know, my bank's closed, my ruble's worthless, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, give me gold. So it's a pipe dream of Putin. Other central banks don't agree with it. Other central banks are not going to trade basis the Moscow price. Other central banks are, have no interest in obeying or following Russia's example. It's not necessarily seen as the kind of place that you want to learn from, except insofar as you want to learn what not to do. You know, so it's him. And then you've got the gold promoters, the conspiracy guys and crazies, you know, and they latch onto this, you know, and they, you know, 15 years ago, there was a senile guy who was running Malaysia and he said, oh, we should have a gold backed currency system. No one agreed with him, you know, but the gold promoters and the conspiracy theory promoters latched on. Oh yeah, Malaysia is going to lead the Islamic world in creating a gold backed currency. Well, 15 years later, no, it hasn't happened. 15 years from now, people will say, oh, yeah, remember when Putin was going to have a gold-backed currency? Yeah, it never happened. But the thing is, Putin has never talked about a gold-backed ruble or a gold-convertible currency. Because if you have a gold-convertible currency, the first thing that happens is everybody says, here's your currency, give me your gold. That's what happened to the United States in 1967, 68. That's what happened to London in the interwar period when it was the financial capital and the pound sterling to gold price was fixed. And people, you know, other central banks said, you know, if you think that the gold prices ought to be whatever it was against the pound sterling, here are my pounds, give me your gold. So central bankers know the history and they are not going to make a gold convertible currency. And a gold-backed currency that's not convertible is kind of a joke. Yeah. It seems to defeat the purpose a tiny bit. Okay, so final myth for you here then. So there is another story that you hear that I think the Shanghai Gold Exchange is also kind of like similar to the Moscow Gold Exchange that it's basically trading at a premium to you know the London market and that basically you get 
more money for your gold in Shanghai than in London, if I understand the myth correctly, true or not, and that this is creating an outflow of gold from west to east. What do you make of that statement? It's, it's cool because um, it's true that there's an outflow of gold from west to east, but it's not as important or as significant as people say. Yeah. So yeah, there is gold flowing into China and India and other parts of Asia because people want gold and they're willing to pay a higher price for it than people storing it or, or buying it elsewhere. But if you look at it, and you know, we haven't updated the data because it's kind of, it's not an important factor in the market. Uh, but you know, five, 10 years ago, people were saying, oh, all this gold is moving from the west to the east. And you saw at the time COMEX inventories falling, London inventories were reported to be declining, Swiss inventories were reported to be declining. And if you looked at the data over like a 10-year period, you saw like maybe 50 million ounces of gold leave Switzerland and go to Asia. And you saw 150 million ounces move into Switzerland from other parts of the country. So you had three times as much gold going into Switzerland as was coming out. Yeah. And again, I talked earlier about you know, the fact that there are any number of people who would rather have their gold in a non-bank depository in Switzerland than a bank depository in London for a variety of reasons. So part of the gold that was flowing into Switzerland was coming out of New York and London and had to do with changes in banking regulations. But a lot of it was coming in from new mine production that was refined in Switzerland and then stored in Switzerland. Maybe 25% of that came out and went to Asian markets but the vast majority stayed in Switzerland. Now, again, you know, one of the nice things about Switzerland is you don't know who's buying that. And it could be that you had Chinese investors saying, give me, you know, 100 ounces of, of gold in Shanghai and 300 ounces in Switzerland. You know, you don't know who those people were. And I'm sure there were so many Asian investors who were saying, I'd rather have my gold in Switzerland than in my home country. Because that's been the history for, what, 300 years? Yeah. So, yeah, there is gold flowing out of Western markets into Asia, but there's more gold flowing into Western markets than is flowing out. Interesting. Okay, so my final question as we wrap up here is on the paper versus the physical markets. Are you seeing a discrepancy between the two? in terms of the price. And if there is a discrepancy, uh, what accounts for it? Is it simply just uh, people needing to make coins and this sort of thing and that there's a backup? I don't know if there is a discrepancy though. So uh, maybe uh, just take the first one first. Uh, is there a discrepancy? There are different markets for gold and you have to understand that. You know, We pointed out in 2008, 2009, we said, you know, People are looking at a wholesale price for gold in London or COMEX, 100-ounce bars in COMEX, 400-ounce units in London. Those are wholesale prices on an inter-dealer market, right? And then you have a one-ounce coin. And, you know, there's all sorts of costs added to making one-ounce coins. 
And we pointed out that if you looked at cocoa or corn or any other commodity and you tried to compare the wholesale price of corn, you know, on the CME compared to the price of corn in the grocery store, that corn in the grocery store would cost thousands of dollars. You know, in cocoa, if you looked at the cocoa price, which is used to be on the New York Board of Trade, now it's on the ice, whatever they're calling it. You know, and you said, well, what's a can of cocoa in a grocery store? It's $6,000, right? So there's a discrepancy between wholesale and retail. There are geographic discrepancies. There are discrepancies between, say, an official coin that is almost universally recognized. Oh, wow, that's a Canadian maple leaf or that's a U.S. eagle. I'll buy that and a medallion struck by a refinery that is a private refinery that God knows who they are or where they are or if they're real. And, mm -hmm. and you know, and so you find all sorts of premiums. And then there's the difference between physical gold and paper gold, right? And now you're talking about, okay, well, do I want physical gold in London? Let's say I want physical, let's say I want a hundred ounce bar in New York, but I don't necessarily want paper. I don't want it on the COMEX. I just want to go. There's a price for that hundred ounce bar. It's high because it's a hundred ounces, but there's a price for that. If you want gold in the futures market, there's a price for that. And it's 15% of the price for a hundred ounce bar because you only have to put up a margin of about 15%. So there are any number of investors who say, well, I wanna trade gold. I can get more bang for my buck in the futures market. I'm not necessarily concerned about having physical gold because I think I'm gonna to have to run to Canada or Mexico. I'm interested in trying to profit from rising and falling gold prices. And I can get this leveraged exposure on the futures market that I can't get in the physical market. There are all kinds of reasons for that to exist, none of which are nefarious. Perfect. I do have one final question. Is your outlook for gold then, uh, say for the rest of the year, coming up next year, what are you seeing? Well, right now you've seen the gold price spike down. There are several factors that could cause the gold price to stay weak for the next month or two. You have the Chinese Communist Party Congress coming up in mid-October. You have the U.S. election coming up in early November. And then you have the ongoing problems in Russia. And, you know, as we're speaking, and for the last week or two now, you've seen a lot of speculation about what's going to happen to Vladimir Putin's career. And there are issues there. Depending on what happens at the Chinese Party Congress, the U.S. election, and Russian domestic politics and the war in Ukraine, the gold price could actually spike down because you could have some changes that reduce the uncertainty politically in each of those markets that could be seen as a relaxation of problems or issues, or they could get worse. So, yeah, we're going to go either way. You know, so we're telling people our trade recommendations we issued on gold and silver on Friday were stand aside because while the prices have fallen very low, we thought gold could get to 1650, at, you know, it's 1652 as we speak, but it got down to 1633 this morning uh, on the COMEX. Paper gold, unrealistic. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
we had thought the price could get down as low as 1650. And so it got to 1650 on Friday and we said, yeah, it kind of looks like a good price to buy, but we would stand aside because you can make an argument that it's going to go back to 18 or 1760, but you can also make an argument that if one or more of these things represent a relaxation of tensions, you could see further weakness. And the fact of the matter is that the gold price and the silver price on last week fell in line with stocks and bonds and currencies and other commodities. So the price weakness was not related to any fundamentals or any conspiracy to suppress the gold and silver prices. It was reflecting broader economic and financial issues and a, a relaxation of concerns about them. So our view is gold price could be weak the next month or so. By the end of the year, we think that it's starting to rise again. And then we think that it rises modestly in 2023 and more sharply later when some of those issues become clearer and it's clearer that they're real issues and not transitory ones. Jeffrey Christian, managing partner of CPM Group. Thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner Podcast. And that is why we bring Jeffrey Christian on to help dispel the myths and temper our imaginations over here. So we thank him again for joining us. And do not delay, the Global Mining Symposium starts September 28th and goes to the 29th. And you can register your interest for free at events.northernminer.com. You're able to message in your questions, interact with the guests, and more. I will have an interview on Thursday, and I am very much looking forward to attending. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.